a seat. Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace Athens. We're glad you're here. We haven't met. My name is John Raymond, pastor here at the church. Uh, we're glad that you're spending your Sunday with us. Uh, hey, if this is your first time or you want to uh, see what we have going on, just pull out your phone, go to graceathens.org, and on there, there's a button you can click that uh, says, I think, visitor or guest. You click that, fill that out, and then we will follow up with you and get you connected uh, to all that happens here at the church. Uh, as that's happening, let me invite Courtney and Caleb to join me right up here. Uh, so what we want to do, oh, dismiss our elementary school students. Elementary school students, I forget this every week. I even have it in different colors. Uh, go ahead and stand on up, elementary school kids. Head to the back. There you go. Meeting with Miss Alex this morning. Awesome. Um, so here's what I want to tell you about. I want to tell you about our house church ministry here at the church. So many people ask us, what happens beyond Sunday? How can we get connected? How can we actually um, find friends here and, and have a community and grow in the Lord? House church is the way that we do that, okay? So we have three different house churches represented up here. I'm representing the adult house church. Uh, Courtney represents the young adult house church. And then Caleb represents the college house church. Okay, in just a moment, you're going to hear from each of them. They kind of tell you what their community is about and just um, invite you to be a part of it. Let me tell you about the adult one. So that's one is right over here. Uh, that meets on Wednesday nights at 6 o'clock. It's at Danielle and I's home, which is just five minutes down the road. And uh, what we do is we have a potluck. We have a meal and a meeting, basically. We have a potluck. A lot of kids running around, all this fun stuff. And we have basically a big house party. And uh, so we eat together. And then, yep, there you go. And then after that, and this, this community just started. So it's only been going a month. So if you're like, well, is this like a thing that's been going for four years and I'm going to have to like break in the awkward phase and, you know, they really want me there. No, this is brand new. We'd love to have you there. And, uh, and it's been awesome. It's not a small group. It's like 40, 50, 60 folks in a home uh, together. So that's kind of the flavor of it. Uh, but we, we have a potluck and then after that we get together, we pray together, we sing together, we get in the scriptures, all those different things. And so um, if you're at all interested in that, here's what I tell you. Just show up. And if you don't want to just show up, you can reach out to Lindsay Beamer. This is all on our website, by the way. And you can text her and just ask for the address, right? And then also uh, just let her know that you're coming. And we'll look out for you and, and, and welcome you to the community. So just show up on a Wednesday night. We'd love to have you. Courtney, tell us about Young Adult. Hello, guys. Um, I'm Courtney. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I lead the Young Adult House Church. Um, and it's basically what it sounds like. It's people that just got out of college and maybe are either in grad school or are working and they just want to find community. I know community can be kind of hard to find um, after college and especially in a college town. And so we have the opportunity to do that. And basically what we do is we get together and we fellowship with one another, um, catch up, and then we pursue Jesus together. And what that looks like is a Bible study every week on Thursday. The address changes because we have multiple people that host, which is amazing. Um, so if you want to come, please come. We want to be your friend. That's our goal. And you can text Grace Vic. Yeah. That number's wrong. <laughs> we'll change on the website. Don't, yeah, never mind. 336. Three three six. Okay. Yep. Don't text that number, or you can come up and either talk to him or me, um, and we'd love to get you connected. So. Sweet. Yeah. Sweet. We haven't met yet. I'm Caleb. My wife and I um, started a house church, and really how it began was me and her and just some friends um, to start gathering in our living room to go after the more of God um, and just really seek Him with our whole heart and just see what would happen. And um, just more people start coming to where we just felt like God was calling us to 
just consistently gather more and more college students. And so now we have the opportunity of leading this college house church and inviting uh, the college students of Grace Athens into it. And so that's really what it is. We're just committed to going after the more of God. We're not content with ankle deep. We're not content with just uh, being complacent. We want to go all in. Um, and we want to do that in community and with you guys. So we're super stoked to see what the Lord does. Amanda's not here. Otherwise, she'd be up here with me. Um, she's gone today. Um, what night of the week? Uh, it's Monday nights. So our tomorrow there's a unity gathering. So it's not really official night of house church. But the following Monday, um, day before Valentine's Day, I think it is. So, wait. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, me, but you can just text me, and that is my number. <laughs> Perfect. Can we thank Caleb and Courtney? Thanks so much, y'all, for leading those communities. Um, quick budget update. I said we, we try and do this each week. We go to that slide. Awesome. Okay, so quick little numbers game here. Total income, 86K. Uh, total expense, 91K. And so that's the difference. We're down just under 5K. And I shared a few weeks ago... Basically, the issue has been, and let me tell you kind of what's saving us here uh, in regards to the difference, is we got a $14,000 tax credit from the government, thank you, uh, that is helping us out. Uh, that's not a typical thing, that was some of the COVID relief. Um, and so that's why our difference is not um, as dramatic. But as I shared the past few weeks, the pattern has basically been, we've been about $6,000 behind per month on giving and tithing. Um, so that we can really meet our goals and, and, and meet our expenses, okay? And actually, we've really underspent 91, so we've, we've underspent, I think, actually where our budget should be is at 106, as those are the funds we need to just do the different ministries. And so uh, our elders, our staff, we, we've been really fiscally responsible uh, because of some of the um, lack of, of, of the income that we need. But here's my deal. Talking about money in church can be really weird. Why? Well, because a lot of churches have abused it. My policy is just be as transparent and be as number and fact-based as possible. I'm not here to hype or to spin. I'm not here to condemn or guilt anyone. I just want us to know the numbers. And I want us to know, like I said the other week, God doesn't give churches heavenly ATM cards where they go and get out money, you know, free of charge. He's called a community, a body of people to say, we're in. And Jesus says, where your money is, your heart is also. And Jesus wants our hearts committed to his mission and his local church. And so that's why we give. We're called to in scripture. Um, a lot of churches go about different ways saying, like, give because you'll be blessed or give because you'll feel more a part of things. This is why I say give. Because he says give. That's, uh, I have no other hyper spin or anything like that. We do it because that's what God calls us to. Now, I know some of us in here are college students. And like I say every time, I love the college students to say, I'm giving $5 a week. You know, Jesus with the woman who, who she only gave, you know, very little money, like pennies. But Jesus said she gave more than the person who gave more than that because she gave, at, you know, out of her lack. She gave everything she had. And so I love the college students saying, $5 a week, I'm not going to get that latte, like I'm giving to that, right? And then for some of us adults, maybe you're in a different, difficult financial season, and to tithe 10% is just difficult. Maybe right now what you can do is 4%. Amen, just do it. Just do it. And then every year, as you can, or every you know, few months, work towards getting to that, that tithing amount. And I think if we do that, and we all say yes, and not just let like 
10% of the congregation fund God's mission here, then I think we're going to be fine. But what I want to do is I want to just be open and honest about where we're at. Sound good? Was that weird or is that okay? If it was weird, I'm sorry. That's how it's going to go. <laughs> awesome. All right. Let me invite our volunteer t- team down. We're going to pass our baskets. If you want to give in that way, you can. If you want to give online, uh, you can give in this way. Just go to our website, click the give button. It'll take you there. That's how Danielle and I do it. Um, nice, easy way to do it. But you can also give right now uh, just via the baskets. Okay. As that's happening, open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark. Chapter 8 is where we are this morning. And if you're here and you don't have a Bible, just slip up your hand and we're going to pass out some Bibles. So slip up your hand if you need a Bible. I want everyone to have the text, whether it's printed or on your phone. And when you get the scriptures, go to chapter 8. So let me tell you about this passage we're going to be getting into this morning. I would argue that today's passage is one of the most important passages in all of the New Testament. Uh, I really believe that, and I think you're going to see that this morning. This is some of Jesus' most shocking material. It's some of his most popular and famous sayings. It's captured in three out of the four Gospels, and it's just really, really important for the disciples' life. Um, Personally, the Lord just keeps taking me back to this passage over and over in my own walk with him. And so I've been studying over, struggling to live and, and live this passage out. Um, but I just think it's so crucial. I remember I got to spend time uh, in a monastery, a Catholic Christian monastery, and there was a monk there named Tom Francis. And he was in his 90s, but you would never know it. He was the happiest, wisest, just, just young at heart. And I remember one time talking to Tom Francis about this verse, and he said this to me. It's always stuck with me. He said, this passage is the one thing that God's been calling me to do my entire life. When a 90-year-old saint says that to you, you know, you go look up the passage. And that's what we're at this morning right there in chapter 8. Uh, let me tell you this. There's three parts to the passage so we can kind of get a road map. And let me list them off for you. I think we have some slides for that. Do we have that? Oh, there we go. First part is who Jesus is. That's verses 27 through 30. The second part is what Jesus must do. And then the third part is what a disciple of Jesus must do. That's how the passage breaks down, just three parts. And that third section, what a disciple of Jesus must do, that's, that's us, is really the very important and crucial part for us this morning. Okay, so let's waste no time. Let's go to the first section. And that picks up right there, chapter 8, verse 27. Let's read it. It reads, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Let's stop there. That's the first section. So here's what's happening. Jesus is taking the disciples. He's taking them 25 miles north from where they were in Bethsaida. And they're in the region of Caesarea Philippi. And he does this to ask them a very, very important question right there in the text. He says, but who do you say that I am? Now this question, 
about who Jesus is, what's his real identity, is the central question that the whole first half of the, Gospels, of the Gospel of Mark has been asking. We're actually at halftime. We're right in the center of this Gospel. It's only taken us, I don't know, a semester and some change to get there, okay? But we're right at the center, the center point of this Gospel. And the whole first half has been asking the question, who is this man, Jesus? Turn back with me. I want to show you a few things. Go to the first chapter of the gospel. So chapter 1. Love that sound. That's just a good sound. Chapter 1, verse 1. Who is this man, Jesus? Opening verse says this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So right there. Mark knows who Jesus is. He says he's the son of God. Fast forward to verse 11, right there in the chapter. Second example. This is God the Father. This is at Jesus' baptism. Verse 11. And a voice came from heaven and said, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So not only does Mark know who he is, God the Father knows who Jesus is. And then fast forward to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 11. This is when Jesus is praying and delivering someone from a demonic spirit or an unclean spirit. In verse 11, it says this. And whenever the unclean spirit saw Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. So, Mark knows who he is. God the Father knows who he is. Even the demons know who Jesus is. But at this point, halfway in the gospel, not one single human person has understood Jesus' real identity and said who he is. Remember, right there in chapter 4, the disciples were uh, on on a boat, 12-man boat. They're in the middle of a sea. Sea of Galilee, I've been there. Violent storms come down those Um, mountain basins and and they're about to perish that's what they say they're about to 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 drown at sea and then jesus who's sleeping gets up apparently jesus can speak to nature and it listens to him which is like one of the coolest things your friends could do he speaks to the storm he says be still be quiet and it listens to him and look at their reaction and verse 41 the disciples it says and they were filled with great fear and said to one another Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So at this point, they don't really know who he is. But today's chapter, you just heard it from Peter. You can go back to chapter 8. Is when they finally get it. They understand who Jesus is. It says right there in verse 29 of chapter 8, Peter's answer is, you are the Christ. Finally, they got it. The exact Greek and the New Testament language is actually you are the Messiah, the Messiah. Now, Messiah had a very big conceptual reality for Jews of that time. Okay, let me try and explain. When Peter says this, he and every other Jew back then had a very particular concept of the Messiah. And this is why Jesus right there in the passage quickly tells Peter to be quiet. I don't know if he would have said shut up, but that's how strong it is in the Greek. Be quiet. Don't tell anyone. 
Look at verse 30. And Jesus strictly charged, strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Don't you find that odd? It's taken eight chapters for them. It's, it's taken them seeing Jesus deliver people from demonic oppression, bring people's eyesight back, heal people, calm storms, all these things. They finally get it. And then Jesus says, don't tell anyone who I am. Why does he want them to keep quiet? Here's the reason. Peter and the disciples might have understood who Jesus is. They said, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. But they were totally wrong on what the Messiah must do. They had that wrong. They knew who he was. They got his identity. But they got what he was supposed to do wrong. That ever happened to you? I was thinking about that this week. You had the right idea about who a person was, but the wrong view on what they should do. I thought about growing up in my own house. This happened all the time. I knew my mom and dad were the parent and I was the child. I heard that over and over. I've actually started using it myself. When you ask why, well, why do I have to do that? Or why this? Or why that? Why can't I have that? Because why do you get that? That's, that, that's when it really comes up. Because I'm the parent and you're the child. Heard that all the time, right? And so I understood that they, that they were the parents and I was the child, but I just had a different view on how they should parent me. And I didn't think I was supposed to be grounded or take my car away or take away my phone, right? Or in college, here's another example. I knew my friend was a student, that was his identity, and he had to finish his degree. But couldn't we just skip that one class and go get something to eat, right? Or go play ball? Right idea of who he was, wrong idea of what that, they, what that person needed to do. That's what's happening. Right idea of Jesus, wrong idea of what he needs to do. So the second section of the passage He's going to start to define what the Messiah really must do and break apart all of their conceptions. Take a look at it. And it would have been shocking for everyone who heard it. Verse 31, second section. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days, rise again. And Jesus said this plainly. Let's stop there. There's three things he listed there. And those three things that Jesus lists do not fit into their idea of what the Messiah must do. It's not what they were brought up thinking. You see it right there in the verse. Let's list them all. Verse 31. He says that the Messiah, him, Jesus, must, number one, suffer many things. Number two, be rejected and be rejected by their spiritual leaders. Not rejected by godless, wicked men, but by like the ones that were leading the spiritual community. So suffer many things. Number two, be rejected. And number three, be killed. This was the exact opposite of what they would have thought. In their framework, and they prayed for the Messiah to come, they would have heard their grandparents praying Jewish prayers for the Messiah to come. They, they would have read Isaiah and the prophecies. They would have been well-versed in all of this. And remember, he's telling the disciples, which scholars said would have been like older teenagers to early 20-somethings. Right? And in their minds, in Peter's mind, in James' mind, in Mary of Magdalene's mind, the Messiah was supposed to be the coming warrior king 
from the line of David in the Old Testament who would liberate the nation from foreign rule, which at that time was the Romans, and then set up a new kingdom of God stationed in Jerusalem, the capital. That's what they think. Things like conquering, victory, taking power, ruling and reigning. And Jesus is talking about suffering many things, being rejected. Peter must think rejected. You're supposed to take over. You're supposed to be at the presidential palace. We're kicking out King Herod and Pontius Pilate, and I'm going to be on your cabinet. Can I be Secretary of State? I'd like that, right? Remember James and John, the sons of thunder, they ask, you know, remember us when you come into your kingdom, that we can sit on your thrones. They want a position of power. And Jesus is saying, you got it all wrong. I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to get killed. And then he alludes to, and I will rise, but they had no clue what that meant. This is nowhere in the program for the disciples or any Jew of that time. It was so much for Peter to handle that he reacts the way he does in verse 32. Look, look at Peter's reaction. Verse 32. So when Jesus said this plainly to them, and Peter took Jesus aside. Remember, he just told him he was the Christ and began to rebuke Jesus. That word rebuke is the same word for when Jesus rebukes demons earlier in the gospel. So, I mean, he's like letting Jesus have it and is rebuking him. Watch what Jesus does. It's a great Jedi mind trick that Jesus is famous for. Jesus turns Peter's rebuke back on him. Verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. A strong language. Jesus' concept of Messiah is not satanic. Peter's is. Get behind me, Satan. It would have been satanic, this is what Jesus is saying, for him to avoid the cross rather than suffer. This was God's plan. You're thinking of the things of man. He says, I'm thinking of the will of God, and the will of God goes through Calvary. I'm supposed to suffer for the sins of the world to rise and offer world salvation when I resurrect and ascend to my kingdom. He's saying, i got to go there. Get behind me, Satan, he says. Look at verse 31. Jesus uses, uses the language right there. He says that he must suffer must other translations say he must do such and such that's how strong he feels about it in jesus mind there's no way to bring about the kingdom and its salvation but through the cross of calvary that's the road he has to go and so again they had the right idea of who jesus was but they had the wrong idea of what he must do and here's what's important for us this takes us to the third and final section a wrong view of Jesus' messiahship leads to a wrong view of his discipleship. That's what Jesus is saying. That's why he talks about the next thing in the third section. A wrong view of his messiahship, who he is and what he must do, leads to a wrong view of his discipleship of us. And so he turns to this final section. And this is the most important part in the passage for us. 
Look at verse 34. You can tell he's about to say something really important. He wants everyone to hear because verse 34 says this. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples. He wants everyone to hear this. And he goes on. Jesus said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So he just got done telling him that he was going to suffer and die. Peter doesn't like it. He rebukes him. And then he says this. If you want to come after him, if you want to follow him, if you want to be my disciple, you must do something of the same. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let's take a moment to ponder this. What exactly does Jesus mean when he says that? What is he getting after? There was this famous um, German theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And there's one line in the book that's famous, and he's talking about this passage. He famously said that when Jesus calls a man or a woman, he bids them to come and die. He calls them to the cross. Jesus' only vision of your Christian life goes through the cross just like his life did. Now, what does that mean? Because we can get that wrong and we can have the wrong idea of what Jesus is really after here because we, we often think this. This is where we often get it wrong. We think that to be a Christian is to live a life of self-denial and great self-discipline. That's what he says, right? He says, deny yourself. We think it's, man, to be a Christian, I don't know how many people, and it's, it's not a bad prayer. There's a biblical call for discipline, no question. But I think too often we miss the point of what Jesus is saying here. It's not so much about self-discipline. It's something deeper. What Jesus is really saying here is to live a life where you renounce your claim to yourself. Where you renounce your claim to yourself. I don't own myself. God owns me. I'm the creature. He's the creator. He created me. I only breathe because he gives me borrowed breath. I don't own myself or my life or my future. God does. And praise God for that. What Jesus is after here is a denial of self-autonomy. It is this. It is to live every second of every day submitted to his will and his way, not our own. Practically, it's to live each day as a submitted man, as a submitted woman. I'm submitted to someone higher. I'm submitted to God. It's living each moment with God's will in mind. Each moment with and This is immensely challenging. Remember Tom Francis, the old monk? It's the one thing God's been calling me to do my whole life. That deeper surrender. But it's living each moment with God's will in mind where God becomes the center of the center of the center of our awareness. And every desire that comes up, every wish or hope, every reaction I have to someone, I live with God's will in mind. What would God have me do here? Remember the bracelet? It's not a bad saying. What would Jesus do? A little cheesy. But it's living with God's will in mind that I'm a submitted man. It's a humility that it takes to do this. And here's what is going to happen. You start to lean on the Lord daily 
to put this into practice, and you're quickly going to find that it's immensely challenging. Immensely challenging. One of the things that helps in this scenario, and you would never wish this upon yourself, but life does hurt, is when you go through tragedy or crisis. It has a way of bringing you to submit to literally like Jacob wrestling the angel of God in the Old Testament to, to, to surrender to God in a new kind of way. Let's all be honest. It's difficult to die. It's difficult to die. And yet, in some kind of spiritual, internal, deeper way, that's what Jesus is saying characterizes the Christian life. Now, here's what's interesting. Because we hear this and it's really challenging. And by the way, one of the ways that people title this passage is the cost of discipleship. And we've mentioned this before. Jesus is not afraid to tell you the cost. We're afraid to do it in today's world with the Christian voices I hear. We'll tell you about all the benefit and the reward, but we don't like talking about that fine print where it's costly. Jesus, he just goes there. But it's paradoxical. This is what we have to understand. See, the paradox of salvation is that it costs us nothing, yet it costs us everything. Just go there with me. So Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. This is what it says. It says, salvation comes by grace alone. It's a free gift through faith alone. And it says, apart from any works that we do, any spiritual, moral works that we do, it says it's a total gift from God. It costs you nothing. But then Jesus also says, if you want to be my disciple, I'm not making this up. You see the verse. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself or herself and take up their cross and follow me. He's saying you must renounce any claim and rights to your own will and way. You die. Costs you nothing and yet it costs you everything. It's the paradox of the kingdom. John, what, what do you mean? Like practically flesh this out for me. I think it's things like this. My nights are not my own. I can get home tired. I can become self-centered, self-absorbed, right? And I'm not thinking with an awareness of what's God's will for me right now. Is it to lay down my tiredness and love my children and serve them? Is it to help Danielle out? Yeah, it's probably God's will. Sometimes it might be to rest. Don't always think that it's, you know, God's constantly just slave driving you and calling you to just get over yourself all the time. No, that's not always the case. But I'm living with His will in mind. My nights are not my own. God might call me to rest. He might call me to serve. But I'm submitted to Him. My body is not my own. How I use it. It's not my decision. It's God's. My home is not my own. That one's real for us right now. We started a house church and I, you know, I'm thinking, man, like 25, 30 folks would show up. Like 60 folks show up to our house. Right? And you got all these people coming in and, you know, who knows, you might get sick because there's 60 people in here with a cold and whatever else. And, and you really just got to, and we just bought this house. But we'll tell you the backstory. We believe God gave it to us providentially. And so God from the beginning said, it ain't your house. We couldn't afford this thing. I mean, things had to line up. And so what it means to 
to die for us. And that example to live submitted to God's will is to say our house is not our own. Here's a big one. My time is not my own. Time's like the most precious commodity. It's always fleeting. What does it mean to live and say, my time's not my own? You're a student or you're retired. You've worked your tail off. You saved that money. You invested in that Roth IRA or 401k. Like You put in the work, right? And it's easy to sit back and think, my job is done. But to live in such a way to say, God, what's your will for my life in this season? What are you asking me to do? I'm sure rest is a part of it, but you're probably asking me to serve. College students, your whole life, and it's great, man. Your whole life right now is all about you. It's about your development. It's about you becoming who you want to be. It's about dreaming about your future. It's about eating pizza late at night and all those fun things. I mean, college towns are ridiculous. I, they're great. I'm, this is not bashing any college town. I love having this. But it's like there's like 20 different pools to choose from. You can go to that apartment or that apartment. I mean, it's just, it's like a resort. Just letting you know. It's amazing. <laughs> Enjoy it. But it's easy to live in such a way where you get caught in the trap and it's all about me. And you're not saying, God, how do you want me to use my senior year? I'm submitted to you. My life's not my own. What are you calling me to? This is some of the texture and flavor of what it means to pick up that cross and to follow Jesus and say, I lay down my life for your will and for your way. It can be immensely challenging. But we lean on the Lord's power and grace. This passage has caused me to pray more than I ever have. This is the hardest passage I've ever tried to put into practice. And it's not a one-time thing. I've said this before. I want it to be a one-time thing. You know, like, all right, I give you my life. You know, and it's like, it's over. I don't do it ever again. <laughs> other, tra- other gospels will say, I think it's Luke's gospel, says bear your cross daily. It's a daily thing. Right? It's immensely challenging. It's caused me to call on the Lord's grace and his power and his strength in my life than any other passage I've tried to apply. You can't do this on your own. It's the grace of God because of the cross of Christ that allows you to do it. Here's how Jesus wraps it up. We good? Everyone with me? You seem like you're listening. Last week you didn't seem like I'm just kidding. Okay. Here's how he ends. Jesus knows this is immensely challenging. And so he ends by giving four reasons as to why you should do it. Four motivating factors as to why you should really take upon this Um, Christian task. Look at verse 35. They all start with four. First reason. For whoever would save his life will lose it, Jesus says. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will actually save it. So that's reason number one. In plain English, here's how it goes. If you don't do so, Jesus is saying, then you'll lose your life. It's a very sobering statement from Jesus. Let me put it in a sentence to to kind of summarize what I believe he's saying here. I think it goes like this. If you keep your life to yourself, your self-autonomy, instead of submitting it to God, then you'll lose your life in the end. That's the warning he's giving here. I think we have a quote from James Edwards, if we could go to that, Caleb. 
There it is. Bible scholar, he sums it up this way. The one for whom the way of Jesus is more important than his own existence will secure his eternal being. Right? That's what he's saying. If you lose your life for, for my sake, you'll actually find it. You'll have life now and forever. He goes on, but the one whose existence is more important than Jesus will lose both Jesus and his existence. So Jesus is saying, I know this is really challenging, but I want to give you motivating reasons as to why you should do it. That's reason number one. He then goes into reason two and three in the next set of verses. Verse 36, he says, For what does it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? That's the reason number two and three. What, here's the question, what would be worth sacrificing in this short temporal life to gain eternal life forever? The answer is anything and everything. This life, we often forget this because we put death really far away and we don't talk about it or, you know, we just don't face it like really they did in the time of Jesus. But we have to understand that this life and its pleasures are so short and so fleeting. Imagine a line that starts here and extends this way all the way into eternity. It never stops. Infinitely goes that direction. The very beginning of the line represents your birth. I'll go ahead and say it. My birthday's tomorrow. 2686. <laughs> you don't have to give me anything. 2686. That's where mine starts. And then it goes eternally in that direction, right? We live eternal lives according to Scripture, okay? <clears throat> And my life, if eternity goes that way, let's say, Lord willing, I live till I'm 85, okay? 85 years on the string of my eternal life is but a tiny dot. The majority of my life is lived after death in that direction. This life is short. It's fleeting. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24, I believe we have that, reads this. All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord endures forever. First John, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Short, temporal, fleeting. I debate on whether or not I should share this. I'm going to share I watched some um, interviews on YouTube this week, and they were about near-death experiences. You heard of this? NDEs, near-death experiences. It's where someone is clinically dead, but they come back. And a lot of times, what scientists are discovering is that when someone is dead, they're basically discovering there is an afterlife. We already knew that in Scripture, but the scientists are discovering this. And the stories are, when they're clinically dead, they, have, they leave their body. And they, in some sense, go into the next world. Okay? And with NDEs, some experiences are heavenly. And there's a certain visitation of heaven. I may may remember our own pastor, Buddy Hoffman, had a near-death experience. He was clinically dead on the table for 42 minutes. And he wouldn't talk about it too much. I doubt he would have done a YouTube interview. Uh, But he had some heavenly experiences. So it either goes that way. Or someone has a hellish experience and they have a certain visitation of hell. 
And so me being either, I don't know, sick or curious, I watch the hell ones. <laughs> I've seen some of the heavenly ones and they're amazing. But I watched some of the hell ones because I was like, wow, I want to see this. And I listened to three different interviews. And they were done by credible platforms. It wasn't like, you know, Joe in his basement, like, hey, let's put this up. Like, credible platforms, Christian platforms. Now, I don't know this person. I don't know if it really happened, okay? But scientifically, these things do happen all the time. And this person described their hellish experience. So I listened to the first one, and I was like, wow. And a lot of it lined up with scripture, and I was like, man, that's sobering. Listen to the second one. Extremely similar. Same kind of characteristics they named. I said, maybe that's a coincidence. Listen to the third one. Almost exactly the same kind of characteristics and distinctions of how they define this hellish experience. And so I left watching those. This was right before I went to bed, which is a bad idea. I wasn't like scared. I wasn't like spooked out, but I was just like, wow, I'm like amped up now. But I watched those and it just... And I remember this one person said over and over, he was 25, he all of a sudden had a stroke and he had this hellish near-death experience. And he talked about how life is so short. He's like, I was 25, I'm healthy, and I had a stroke, I was clinically dead. And this person has this experience, he comes back, he is not the same, he is sold out, he's ready to apply chapter eight. Because he's seen how short and temporal this life is. So that just deeply impacted me. Then, and these are connected, they don't seem like it. I listened to one of the most impactful podcasts I've heard probably in 12 months. And it's, it, here's the title. It's five biblical archaeology discoveries that affirm the Bible. I'll send it to you if you want to see it. It's the five biggest discoveries they've made. And the biggest one they've made just happened recently where they discovered, it goes all the way back. It's the furthest thing they've found. It's in Exodus. God has uh, the people of God climb Mount Ebal and build an altar to the Lord. They've literally found the remains of that altar. And trust me, they peer review this. They check this. It's not like just, again, Joe out there in the field finding something. So listen to five of these different ones that affirm the credibility of the Bible. And so on one hand, earlier in the week, you know, I'm, I'm listening to how short life is. And then on the other hand, I'm listening to how credible and real and true God's word really is. And it just caused me to run to the words of Jesus, even if they're so challenging in chapter 8. Even if they're so confronting, it just causes me this desire to run to them and to cling to them because it's the one truth that matters that will ultimately save us. And I believe this is why Jesus gives his fourth reason. Right there in verse 38. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words... In this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. So he's talking about the next life. And what's cool is the opposite is true here in the verse. Just look at the verse 38. The opposite is true. Jesus is also saying, Those that love and honor Jesus, that cling to his words, that person will be loved and honored by the Son of Man when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. That's what I want. That's what you want. 
I want Jesus to recognize me. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I never knew you. I want Jesus to recognize John Raymond. Why? I want Jesus to say, I know that man. Because by my grace, he submitted to me in his life. He got it wrong a thousand times. Sinful, hard-hearted. But he, but he kept coming back, calling on the grace of the Lord, and tried to submit his life to me. I know that man. I want that to be said of everyone in this room. It says, when Jesus comes into the glory of his Father with his holy angels. I know him. I know her. They love me. They've tried to live my words. Welcome into my Father's kingdom. I don't know about you. I'm sure you're the same way. I don't want to have any holy regret. I don't want to look back at the end of my life, if it is 85 years, and have regret before God. I don't want to say, it costs too much. It just costs too much. I wasted my 40s or 50s on trivialities instead of walking in a deeper surrender and intimacy with the living God. Come on, none of us want that. None of us, none of us want that. And none of us will regret surrendering to more of God. When you get to the end of your life, you're not going to be like, man, I should have just not done so much of that spiritual stuff. I really wasted my time in that Grace Athens place. I read my Bible too much. I gave too much. I served too much. That's not what you're going to say. That's not the regret you're going to have. Here's the truth of the passage. When I give my life more over to God, he gives me more of his. We get more of God and more of life in the exchange of ourselves. God's not trying to take anything from you. He's trying to give you all of himself. God is the author of life. He is the source of life. Augustine says that a man's heart is restless until he finds his rest in God. You were made to be connected to the source of life. The vine and the branch. You're like a fish out of water when you don't live that submitted, intimate life to God. A fish just dying out of water. It needs to do what? It needs to get back to the ocean. We're like fish out of water and get back to the ocean of God's presence and God's love. And the way to do it is to lay down more of your control, more of your will, and say, Lord, I'm yours. And he will give you of himself. You will have joy, you will have peace, and you will have God, the greatest gift, because of it. So let me invite Will and the team to join me up here. Good chapter, right? Lots to talk about. As we turn to respond and worship, here's my encouragement. Let the Lord deal with you this morning. He reaches out to you with fatherly loving hands. But let the Lord speak to you. Hear his voice this morning. Here's the question. If you need a question to take you into the presence of God, to take you into prayer, because sometimes it's we close our eyes and it just all goes blank. Here's the question. What does deeper surrender in your life look like right now? That's it. 
What does deeper surrender, God, in my life look like right now? See what the Lord brings up. There's nothing you'll miss or regret when you lay down your life more to God this morning. We didn't like that one. We like this one. So I want to invite you now, if you're willing, just, just close your eyes and go into a place of prayer. And here's the question. God, what does a deeper surrender in my life look like right now to you?